Amen. You may be seated. Well, the most, one of the things we do here, at least regularly, is have a diet of preaching sections the Bible. And we actually started way back toward when I got here in the book of Genesis. We now find ourselves today in the book of Exodus chapter 21. So think of it almost like we've been streaming seasons of this. You may stream for a time on Netflix or whatever, and then the show goes away, then it comes back. We're sort of dropping back in to the book of Exodus. And friends, we come to the most interesting part of the whole book of Exodus. If some of you are aware of this section, you're kind of on the edge of your seat waiting for what the pastor is going to say because we begin the law section of the book of Exodus. All those interesting laws in the Old Testament, some we're going to see today about what they did with slaves in the Old Covenant, some regarding tabernacles, sacrifices, lots of really, really interesting pieces. We're going to begin a series through the back end of the book of Exodus over the next several weeks. I hope you'll stick with us and join us and I probably won't answer every question you have, but I'd love if you get any or think of any questions uh, after, I'd love to hear those and field those and even see if I can, uh, I may not have the answer, but I'm going to be able to point you to somebody who does. So Exodus chapter 21, and we're going to look at chapter 21 and 22. I'm not going to read all of that section for us this morning, but I do want to set it up this way. Parents, how many of y'all have ever said these words? My house, my rules. Yes, I saw some hands go straight up in the air, right? My house, my rules, right? When it's your place, when it's your house, you get to make the rules. Sir, every household here probably shares certain general rules or general principles that are shared among them. But also every household here has a certain way of fleshing out and applying those rules in their particular family. And just because the family down the seats from you does it one way doesn't mean your family is going to do it that way. And think of the back end of the book of Exodus, which we're joining here today, as God's God's rules for the family he was building. We join the nation of Israel. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses, who's the leader and the mediator, has gone up and there's all these black clouds around him, thunder and lightning, and he is receiving the law. And what began with 70 people, descendants of Abraham, has now grown into a nation and has been freed from slavery in Egypt. They've been led through the wilderness, and God is going to establish them in their own land as their own people under his rule. And God is giving them the law. And here's the most significant thing about the law. Moses is going to remain on that mountain from Exodus chapter 20 all the way to Numbers chapter 10. So the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and part of the way through the book of Numbers. And the law is even going to continue on into a book called Deuteronomy. This is a pivotal moment in the story of redemption. God is giving the law to his people. And historically, theologians have divided up the law into three subsections. They would call it creation law, civil law, 
and ceremonial law. The moral law, or law rooted in creation, is universal law that transcends countries and cultures. The Ten Commandments, which we worked through together earlier this year, is a good summary of the moral law. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. Friends, that sort of transcends where you're from and kind of what you do and what your family makeup may look like. I think those big three probably check out, right? And that generally the law regardless of where you're from is probably summarized in that creation law. And Exodus actually sets those laws aside because if you look back at Exodus 20 verse 1, he calls them the ten words. That God spoke these words directly to Moses so he could speak them to the people. And after he finished speaking them, the people were terrified because of both the presence and the precepts of God. They were terrified because when God appears, that can be a very terrifying thing, but also because God would hold them accountable to that law. And if we're honest and we look at the Ten Commandments, none of us, preacher included, has perfectly kept them. That's the creation law. Then there's what's called the ceremonial law. We're going to catch that in Exodus 25 through 40. And that's all the laws you think of when you think of the Old Testament. Laws about temples, sacrifices, washings. And let me tell you, you may think this is weird, but I'm so excited to get to that section. Because there's some cool stuff in there and how that points forward to the ministry of the Lord Jesus. So I'm excited to get there. But today we look at what's called the civil law of God. This is what might be case law or the creation law applied to Israel's unique context. We find in Exodus 21 and 22, the 10, rather than the 10 words, universal law for all people, we see the house rules for the people of Israel. We see specific application of the ten words to the particular nation of Israel. Look what we see rather than the ten words. Look how Exodus 21, Exodus 21 verse 1. Now these are the rules you shall set before them. This is a uniquely different Hebrew word, and he's drawing a distinction between the ten words of Exodus 20 and the rules of 21 to 23. In fact, if you turn over to Exodus 24 and verse 3, we see this. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So there were the words, the Ten Commandments, the universal law for all people everywhere. And then there were the rules. While the law is one unit, it all came from God, it can be divided in how we understand it. And how we relate to this law as people who are not in ancient Israel, as people who are under a different covenant, what the Bible calls a new and better covenant, that's going to look a little bit different. And Moses wrote this down, and we come now to what Moses wrote down. And here's the central point I hope we take away this morning. The main idea, what to walk away is this. God provided these laws to define the holy nation. He is wanting to give definition to Israel as the holy nation. We won't be able to look at all of them, but I hope we see that these laws were what made Israel Israel. 
It was defining them as a holy people. It was showing how he wanted them in the place they were in, there in the wilderness and in the kingdom they would found, to walk as God's people in covenant with him. Exodus 19 says that he wanted Israel to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood, and if they were left asking, how do we do that, God says, here you go. Here's how I want you to structure your society, Israel. And obviously, we are not members of the nation of Israel. So how, how do we relate to these? What should we do with this section of Scripture? We're not just supposed to rip this out and sort of throw this aside. It's in here for us. Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for us. So what are we to do with this? First, I think the most important thing we should understand is we need to seek to find the principle behind the specific law, the universal principle that's behind the specific law. Think of it this way. Various houses here with your kiddos, you have different curfews for when they're supposed to be in, likely due to their age, right? That curfew might be 9, 8, might, might be 9 p.m. for some of you. Some of you, your kids may be older and it might be midnight. Hey, I just want your kid to come in by midnight by the time it's all said and done. But friends, the application looks different, but the principle's the same. You better get home. And you better get home when mom and dad tell you to get home. And in these laws, we actually see the specific application of the Ten Commandments and how they were to work them out. The holy law particularly applied in order that they may be a holy nation. Again, we can't look at it all, but let me show you this. Look at Exodus 21 and look at verse 12. Look at this. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. If you go home today and read through this section, the best thing you could do is have a little pencil with you and have a copy of the Ten Commandments next to you and mark which commandment works with which command. Because this is a specific law that clarified and applied the Sixth Commandment. What did it mean to murder? Well, it meant lying in wait for them. Sometimes accidents happen, and that's not what that commandment is equally as concerned about. And we notice how serious God was about this law being obeyed. They put the death penalty in place, and this community, friends, gets to tell you, this is not something we want you to do. And to deter them from that activity. And these laws were never meant to be an invitation to vigilantism. We've got to understand he wasn't telling us to take matters into our own hands because he's going to go on to have these laws that build out a system of judges and appeal courts within the context of ancient Israel. This wasn't an invitation to seek vengeance upon the one who murdered, but rather to ensure a system of law enforcement and justice could be done for those who were wronged. He wanted the holy people to live in a holy way, and so he gave them this to encourage them in that. Look at verse 15. And ask yourself, which commandment is this? Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. That's an application of the fifth commandment. And what's meant to ultimately tell us is that God takes family seriously. And parents, don't rush home and put this verse up on the refrigerator when you get home. 
That's not what this is an invitation toward. Because, friends, there's lots of other laws that Israel has that are going to be put, that we have to put together and consider and apply. And there were particular contexts that, can, that we have to read and understand and put together here. And these were laws under the old covenants that had to be considered before justice could be rendered. Think of verse 16. Look at this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. This verse is going to come up in a second, but it's an application of the eighth commandment. When God says don't steal, he didn't just mean stuff. He meant people too. And God is telling us through that command that he values property and he values people, but he doesn't want us to get them confused. He doesn't value them both equally. In fact, punishment for stealing stuff was restitution, as we're going to read. The punishment for stealing a person was death because you impacted that whole person's life. God's holy nation needed to be a nation that valued people more than stuff. And there are even commands here regarding right and holy worship. Over in chapter 22 and verse 20, look at this. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Can we see the application of the first and second commandment? No other gods than the true God and worship him as he commands. Remember, the law is showing this is how he wanted that law to be fleshed out in the kingdom and the covenant he was building among his people there in the wilderness. And when we come to this law, here's important, we should not seek to find a one-for-one fulfillment in our present culture and certainly not in our American law code. Here's an important thing to realize. America is not is not Old Covenant Israel, and neither is the church. So we don't need to just go take this verse and go, well, it says if you strike him, you put him to death, and like send our child to the judge and expect that to happen. That's not what's, what God has given us this law for. I don't think we're even meant to seek for our nation to have these exact laws. We're not a nation in covenant with God as the nation of Israel was. This was a law given to the people Israel, God had brought them out of slavery. We're not a nation that he rescued from the Egyptians by his mighty hand. We're not a nation at the foot of Sinai with Moses as our leader up there. In fact, the Bible says that we as the church, those who believe in Jesus, are part of a new and better covenant. But again, that doesn't mean that this section of Scripture is irrelevant to us. Rather, it means we draw principles from behind the laws that do apply to us. And all of that said, that's what I want us to do this morning. Four principles from the holy nation. Four holy principles from the holy nation. Four timeless realities from Israel's particular laws. And let's look first. The first thing we see is that the law teaches us to care for the poor. The law teaches us to care for for the poor. And I know as we look at some of these laws, some of them are going to stand out as unusual. Some of them may even be particularly seem offensive on their face. And probably the most controversial section, if you've skimmed through this, you'll see if your Bible has the little headings, is right above chapter 21, it says, laws regarding slavery. 
And due to our nation's past, we hear the word slave, and you probably have a particular picture in your mind as to what this is talking about. But it's important. I want us to see what's going on here in Exodus 21 is nothing like what happened in our country just several hundred years ago. To start off, we already saw in verse 16 of chapter 21, stealing people in order to enslave them was directly condemned by God. It was a capital offense. This was not something that God would have people do. And in fact, we're going to see Old Testament Israel, slavery there was 100% voluntary. Look at chapter 21, verse 2. I promise we'll begin to see some interesting connections here in a second. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. You notice, in ancient Israel, slaves went free in the seventh year, the year of Jubilee, which was the year all debts and contracts were forgiven. They were done. In ancient Israel, there was no such thing as a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. You got it done in seven or it didn't happen because all the debts would be forgiven and wiped away. The nation lived in a seven-year cycle, and on the seventh year, there was a release from all contracts and obligations. Friends, certainly that's a far cry from anything we've seen in our history or in other forms of slavery throughout the world today. In fact, slavery was regulated in the book of Exodus as a means not to oppress people, but to serve the poor. Because in ancient Israel, they could enter into slavery and enter into someone's service in order to have their debt paid off. They could exchange their service to receive something in return. And it's important that we realize this. The people of Israel knew what it was to be slaves. Remember, they were just slaves in Israel not that long ago. And friends, he was telling us that, friends, the Ten Commandments began with a reminder that the Lord freed them from slavery, and he begins this section with regulation for slaves in order to tell them, don't be like the Egyptians. Don't oppress people. Don't bring them down. He wants them to do this as an act of love and care for the needy among them. Because this was nothing like what occurred in our nation several hundred years ago. What they set this up as was really closer to, and, and this is the closest, uh, this is one of the analogies that, that I could think of and that I read this week, was closer to entering into military service. Voluntary. For your time serving there, you receive certain things. They'll help you. They'll pay you. They might even pay off some of your debts if you enter in for a period of time. And friends, some even chose to enter into this in ancient Israel for a long time service. Look at verse 3. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Notice, the person could even meet a lady while they're in this context. 
but they needed to understand that if they were going to get a wife out of the deal, they might have to work a little longer. Abraham knew this, right? He worked seven years and then ended up working 14 years. And we're even going to read someone could purchase their wife or their family out of slavery by paying off their debt. This is such a foreign arrangement to us. We don't have really anything like this in our world today. But sometimes there are people who want to bring objections against the Bible, and they just want to make it feel bad by throwing the word slave and master and owner around. But we use the term owner in our world today. Think about professional sports teams. There's a guy named Mark Cuban. I don't know if any of you know him. He's a billionaire, star of Shark Tank, and he famously purchased the team, the Dallas Mavericks. And what is his title? He owns, he is the owner of the team. And that team enters into a contractual relationship that cannot be broken, at least not without penalty. We've got to get out of our mind the, pract- the connections that may be there between this practice and the atrocities of slavery in the world today. This was a means of serving the poor. You can actually see this, if you're curious, over in Deuteronomy chapter 15, because many would come out of slavery and the master would give them stuff in order to bless them on their way. This was the old covenant and an ancient Israel version of a jobs program. Someone contracted to work for a period of time, and in return, maybe their student debt is paid, maybe they receive training they need, whatever it is, they could either leave at the end of the sixth year, or they could move on, or they could stay on. Exodus 21, 2-6 dealt with male slaves. Let's see what it has to say to the female slaves. Look at verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for herself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he's broken faith with her. If he designates her for her son, he shall deal with her as as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or her clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of food. Notice it tells us here, someone could be bought out of this. We see a famous example of that in the book of Ruth, a kinsman redeemer purchasing someone out of slavery. Notice it says that food, clothing, and other rights were were retained there. They weren't allowed to be left destitute. Friends, there's lots that goes into this that can be hard for us to understand, but I think part of the reason that money was exchanged was in order to make sure the contract was held up. This is a complex system of laws. We really, to fully understand this, have to bring in other places in the law, just like if you were to truly want to understand American law, you would need a lot more than this size book to get that done. But we can see this is a far cry from what the internet atheist might have you think the Bible teaches or what someone who's just an ignorant objector to the Bible might paint it to be. This is a small section of what the law says about certain contractual arrangements. And you're probably sitting there going, okay, pastor, what does this have to do with me? Here's the point. God cares for the poor, and friends, God would have his holy people to care for the poor and needy. 
God allowed for this practice to be modified and regulated in the ancient world in order to provide a safety net for those in need. In fact, it is telling us that if you want to be holy, you need to care about other people in need. The book of James talked all about that, which we just finished a study through, where it says that true religion was caring for the orphan and the widow, the poor and the destitute. And Exodus 21 takes it one step further because God's people in ancient Israel literally took personal responsibility for the poor among them. They didn't just write a check and forget about it. They brought them into their companies, into their families, and they provided them opportunities to grow and prosper. They took the risk. They didn't simply give a man a fish. They literally set up a a way to try to teach a man to fish and give him a job in the family fishing business. So what's the application of this to our modern day? Friends, if any of you may own a business, ask yourselves this, who could you employ that others might overlook? in order to give them an opportunity and maybe lift them out of poverty and the situation that they're in? What opportunities could you create in this community through job training, education programs, through creating unique job positions that allow those who are down and out to get up and out of their present situation? Let me say something to you today who are educators, whether public, private, homeschooled, all of y'all are superstars. Friends, let me tell you, the kids give up something to come to you for eight hours a day for however many years that they end up being with you. Friends, in exchange, you were paying dividends to them for the gift of education. You were doing what this text seeks to do, which is break generational curses. To give people something to leave there with in order to change their family trees. And the question for us as a church is this, how do we think about the poor? Do we see there's many among us who need a chance, an opportunity to work and thrive? And how can we come together and individually help to help those people? God's log put on my heart that what our church And what our community needs, yes, benevolence ministries are great. Write a check, give them food, whatever we need. Yes, but friends, we also need a way to connect those willing to work to those needing to work. And I would have our church begin to pray about how we could help people in our community in a real huge way to go beyond just doing a one-time way of serving them, but to walk alongside them, maybe help them build a resume, connect them to work. I don't have all the answers or a complete vision for how that looks, but friends, we've got to start somewhere. And it starts with embracing God's care for the poor and getting to work for what God cares about. Can you understand that God could have started the law anywhere, but the first thing he wants to address is, here's what to do with the poor who are among you. That tells us something about God's heart and what he cares about. Well, we as a church begin to pray and collaborate together to create opportunities to serve the poor among us. God gave these laws to Israel as a means to care for the poor. And he did so in a way that honored work, and sought to change the course of someone's life. Friends, there's a lot more to this law than we often give it credit for. Let's look at the second thing the law does, because the law does more than just have us to care for the poor. The law also teaches us to protect the accused, to protect 
the accused. Notice how carefully God's law had to be applied. Look again at verse 12 of chapter 21. Look at this. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place in which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another and kills him by cunning, he shall take him from my altar that he may die. Notice, the law is careful to distinguish between intentional homicide and accidental death. And even our own American law makes this distinction. There's a difference between first, second, and third degree murder. And we see that the penalty for an accident was that they would flee to a place called a city of refuge, which was sort of a place they could go, a city they could be held in that would keep them safe from vigilantes and allow a time to investigate the particulars of the case. And then they said the punishment for first-degree murder in this context, the intentional taking of another human life, was death. And this needed wisdom and prudence to apply. See that they were very careful to protect the accused from receiving the wrong punishment for what occurred. They didn't just say, well, those two were there and one of them walked out, therefore we just need to stone the guy to death. They were very careful about making sure that all the facts were known. The presumption of innocence and the need to investigate were built into the system. The law even goes on to deal with, what do you do when two people are in conflict? Look at verse 18. When men quarrel and one strikes another with a stone or with his fist, in other words, what do you do when two bros get in a fight? And the man does not die but takes to his bed... Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. Notice, the recovery, if the one who was hurt recovers in the conflict, then the one who harmed them pays for their time off and their medical care. But that's a far cry from the death penalty. The law calls us to make careful distinctions in order to protect the accused from unjust judgment and from the corruption of justice. We even see in the latter part of chapter 21, there's lots of laws relating to animals. And it says you've got to think differently about a man whose ox gets out once and goes and hurts somebody and someone who literally knows they have a dangerous ox and just lets it go free all the time. So, what's the point? What does this mean for us? Friends, the point for us is that God cares that justice is done, and God did not desires us to know the whole story before we draw conclusions or make judgments. And friends, in our day of social media, this is truly challenging, because sometimes we just want to see something pop up on the feed, and we just already have a judgment on it before we've even read the article, sometimes because of who the article's from. Obviously, those people aren't going to tell me the truth, right? Friends, we're all tempted to be partial towards certain groups over others. And we're tempted to remove the presumption of innocence from those who we don't like or who differ from us most. But God says we need to protect the accused and we need to be impartial in our judgment. Notice he doesn't say if he's accused of it, kill him for it. These laws, all of them, require a period of investigation and wisdom in order to apply. They protected everyone from abuses and excuses. And to make sure true justice, as far as was possible, 
could be accomplished. Friends, justice is hard. (laughs) That's the point. But where possible, we should seek to protect the accused. The holy nation needed to presume innocent until proven guilty to be people of facts and truth. And as God's holy people, we need to be the same. Consider this, in your own life, when someone gossips to you or you hear them make an accusation against someone to you, are you careful to weigh the evidence before drawing conclusions? And if we're honest, sometimes the best question to ask is, is, man, am I even the one that needs to hear this and draw a conclusion? One of the most freeing things in the world is to realize you don't have to have an opinion on everything. Breathe out. Isn't it great? You do not have to have an opinion on everything that's going on. And one of the most important ways we measure gossip is to ask if it's relevant for us. Do we even need to hear this? Do we have anything to do with changing the situation? Are we the one who can do anything about it? In fact, I believe this is one of the mistakes many churches have made when it comes to illegal and immoral activity that occurs in churches. And they do happen. In fact, Exodus 21 and 22 is a reminder that sometimes the people of God can be the perpetrators of great evil. And this would encourage us to go, hey, friends, if they confess to something illegal or we find out something criminal has gone on, friends, my job may not be to determine what's right or what's wrong, but it is to call the authorities who can. It's to leave it to the proper court of law to draw those opinions. So many times the problem is is they try to handle something that we're not qualified to handle. And taking this out of the realm of criminal activity, when somebody gives us the latest tea about somebody, are we careful to draw our own conclusions? Friends, are we willing to not have a conclusion or an opinion if it's not our job to have one? And are we careful to make distinctions if necessary? Or friends, do we just get caught up in the outrage machine and let that drive our decision making? Because God's law would have us have two hands on the wheel. And it would be his wisdom and his law together to make these judgments. We should be careful not to prosecute a case without having all of the facts. And it's better to stay silent than to act presumptuously. I think it's better to wait than to waffle when truth and life hang into the balance. God's law would call us to to defend the accused. But the law also was given so that evil done could be punished, particularly evil done against the innocent. Let's see the third point. Because the law teaches us, yes, to care for the poor, to protect the accused, but also teaches us, third, to defend the oppressed to defend the oppressed. If you look at chapter 22, almost all of it deals with the issue of restitution, which is paying back someone which you have wronged them. Look at verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and he kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Verse 5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds into another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the stacked grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. 
And if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it's stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. Then verse 14, if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. God defends the oppressed by commanding restitution for the wrong. Friends, there are folks who would often afflict the poor because they think they'll never be able to get back at them for anything. That's what laws about restitution were meant to defend. Others had, had things taken away from them that took much more to replace. Think about what's lost if a cow was lost, particularly in this ancient world. A cow meant meat, it meant milk, and friends, it meant more cows in the future if you get two cows together, right? Friends, that's why restitution was often four to five times the original damages. God's expectation is that those who were wronged would be repaid with restitution. Not everything in the Old Testament needed the death penalty. Some things just needed to come out of their own wallet and their own field. Sometimes the right thing to do is to give back what is stolen plus additional damages. God's got the oppressed in mind all over in this passage. Look at verse 21 of chapter 22. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend to any of my people with you who are poor, you shall not be like a money lender to them. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. He ends chapter 22 with the same subject as he begins chapter 21, having us think again about the poor and the oppressed. Here he says, hey, the sojourner should not be oppressed. The widow and the fatherless should be avenged. The poor should not be extorted through excessive interest. What we take should be returned when they need it. And we should notice here that God also promises that he will stand with the oppressed when they cry to him. Remember, Israel was once under oppressive slavery in Egypt, and we were told that they cried to him and God answered and friends, God's saying that he will gladly turn the tables when the Israelites were doing the oppressing. And God will bring judgment on us, friends, if we cheat and lie and steal from the needy, the oppressed, and the downtrodden. It's a reminder again that sometimes God's people are the, are the perpetrators of great evil. But we're given a reminder that God will judge. He has given us an invitation for us who have, who have been wronged to cry out to him who is compassionate and just. And God has set up two law courts, his own divine judgment and human judgment to protect the oppressed and the powerless. He has both his heavenly courtroom and an earthly courtroom for things to get sorted out. And friends, let me tell you, in his courtroom, he's never gotten a case wrong and he never will. And we should respect and honor the judges and the law enforcement in both. 
While no human judge or law enforcer is ever perfect, the Bible teaches we should honor and submit to them where possible, knowing that, friends, the great white judgment is a date that all of us have. Even crooked judges will have their day in court. And so will we. Consider this. When we see people in need, do we see it as an opportunity to help ourselves? Do we take advantage of others for our personal gain? Will we only help someone if there's something in it for us first? Friends, God's law stands opposed to this. And if you do this, this text is saying God stands opposed to you. But let me close with some good news. Because this is not just a passage about judgment and law. This passage includes a preview of grace. In fact, the law prepares the way for Jesus. That's what I want us to see. The law prepares the way for Jesus. Look at how this passage ends. It's a little unusual, but there's something incredible here. Chapter 22, verse 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Here we see a principle that's throughout the scripture. It's the principle of the first fruits. That we're to give to God our first and our best, not our last and our rest. We're to give of our harvest and our family. God wants our time, talents, and treasures, and for us to give the first and the best to Him. God doesn't call any of us to be simply consumers, but to be contributors in His kingdom, not for puffing up a budget, but for impacting the world. And friends, when you give here of your time, talents, treasures, let me just say this. When you do that, friends, you're not just keeping the lights on, though that's not a bad thing. You're enabling God's servants to do God's work here and beyond. You're enabling us to serve kids in our kids' ministry, to have our food pantry, to support gospel work in other countries and even nonprofits here at home. We give out of our harvest in order to support the harvest that God is producing. Are we giving of ourselves in order to impact others? And here's the most important thing that we can draw from this. Friends, when we give, we're doing something that God has already done. God himself gave. And the greatest motivation for giving of your life in the service of others and giving your life to God isn't guilt, but rather it's the gift and the grace of God. See, this passage tells us to give of our first fruits. Even they were to consecrate and set aside their own firstborn and devote them to God. And see, God gave of his first fruits. The Bible says he gave his one and only son, not to consecrate him just, but to be the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Because, friends, all of us are people who have not properly cared for the poor, who have not protected the accused, and who have not defended the oppressed. All of us, if judged before God's law, will be found guilty. And that's why God has made a way for us to be forgiven through the gift of his Son. And he has given Jesus in order to save us from our sins. And if you notice in the text, the 
son was to be consecrated on the eighth day. And in Jewish counting, the seventh day was Saturday, which makes the eighth day Sunday. And it's interesting because, friends, what day did Jesus rise again? On the eighth day. On the eighth day, God's son, who was given as the Lamb of God, was fully consecrated when he rose up out of the grave to conquer death, sin, and hell, and to give us eternal life. And it's important that we realize that we can never outgive God. It's important to see that this is not a passage primarily about law separate from grace. But rather, we can only seek to be God's holy people because God has redeemed us and brought us to be his people and his servants. There is no context for understanding this apart from the Exodus. Apart from being freed from slavery in Egypt, friends, Jesus has done so much more and freed us from slavery to sin. And today, friends, if you're lost in sin... If you're feeling the weight of the law on your soul, here's the good news. The way to fix it isn't through more and more restitution and more and more giving and just living a better life. No, it is through surrendering to the God who can save you. Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, and he's washed it white as snow. And Jesus takes you on a new and better exodus, not, through, not, not freedom from the Egyptians, but freedom from slavery to sin. And it's this new exodus that we remember in the Lord's Supper. Here in just a moment, we'll have a time where we'll be able to take the supper. And the supper is open to you if you call Jesus your Lord and your Savior. If you're a baptized follower of Jesus today, the supper stands open to those who maybe you're still investigating and figuring out this whole Jesus thing, that's okay. We're glad you're here, but we'd ask that you'd let the bread and the cup pass and use this as a time to reflect because the bread symbolizes his broken body and the cup, his shed blood. And as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, friends, ask ourselves, are we walking as God's holy people, empowered in hope and fueled by the promise of his word? Let's pray and prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. Father in heaven, this was a difficult passage of Scripture for us to understand. But Lord, it's not one without hope. It's not one that doesn't point us toward your Son and the hope found in Him. And we're thankful that you don't call us to consecrate our lives without first having offered a consecrated one on our behalf. Lord Jesus, I pray right now that if there's anybody here within the sound of my voice who's not given their life to you, who's not surrendered under your good and right law, that they would do that right now, that they would surrender to Jesus and by faith and faith alone, they would receive your grace and your salvation. Lord, I also pray for us that are your people that know you and claim to follow you, that we would be people who care about what you care about, who would walk according to your word and your law and be a holy people living out your holy law. As we take the Lord's Supper today, 
Help us to wait. Help us to prepare our hearts. Help us to give honor and glory to you. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.